What a day when eyes of faith become eyes of sight. We in this moment turn our eyes of faith to our Lord Jesus as we gaze upon him in this written revelation of his word. But a glorious day that is coming when that faith sight becomes actual, true, complete, eternal, unending sight. When we, like Revelation 22 says, we are in his presence and we see him face to face. Take your Bibles and join me in John 9 as we finish this chapter with the eyes of faith, looking to our glorious and good Lord. Several years ago, I gave myself to the arduous task of slogging through David McCulloch's biography of John Adams. I say arduous because of its length, not because of its content. It is a tremendous book. John Adams, you know, one of our founding fathers, has a captivating story of life and influence and investment in the founding of our country. There were indeed slow sections of that 650-page tome as I worked my way through it over many months, but I found it to be well worth the effort. This well-written recounting of one of the most influential men in our nation's earliest years was so helpful for me. I was nearing the end, and I was roaring along through the book. I, was, I could see the end in sight. I, I picked up my pace of reading, and the story itself picked up in excitement as he drew the, the threads of the story together in the last few days of Adam's life. All throughout the book, he had been weaving together the stories of John Adams and of Thomas Jefferson, our other, one of our other founding fathers. He told the story of their friendship and of also their animosity and their difficulty and their political differences. John Adams from the North and Thomas Jefferson from the Virginia South. One a slaveholder and one entirely opposed to slavery and yet they came together as likely the most two influential men to form the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution upon which our nation tentatively stands at this moment. These men had an amazing life. The last few pages of McCulloch's book drew the stories together how they took their last breath on the exact same day, which happened to be the 50th anniversary of July 4th, 1776. It was July 4th, 1826. Both men drew their final breaths and departed from this earth. Fifty years prior, they had been together in the same room in Philadelphia, had signed the declaration, had made it public on July 4th, and had declared themselves to be tyrannical against the government of England. On that same day then, 50 years later, their lives ended. It's a fascinating story. I'm guessing, however, that you're only mildly interested in it in this moment because you did not have the background of the 640 pages that preceded the the 10 last pages. As I read breathlessly those last 10 pages, you would read sleepily if you did not read the first 640. As McCulloch effectively drew those various strands of those lives together, he took my breath away, saving the best for last, landing his strongest punch as he closed out the story. In essence, that's what we have in our seven verses before us in John 9. 
you could learn a lot from the first part of, of chapter 9. I mean, I've preached two other sermons from that text, so hopefully you've learned something from the first part of John 9, but you'd miss the whole point if you didn't read through to the end and understand these seven verses. What we learn in these verses before us is that the, the man who was born blind that Jesus confronts and heals at the beginning of chapter 9 is a living parable. He's a constant display of, of the power of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus. And this incident is chock full of important, eternal, spiritual lessons. Jesus intentionally and publicly healed this man to give clear evidence that he was indeed the Messiah, the one sent from heaven. And this healing put on full display the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees along with the true faith of this man who had been healed. It is an amazing encounter that the curtains get drawn closed together on in these verses. Before I read them, I want to just remind you what's going on. We're in a, a period of rising public tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. The general crowd, we learned in chapter 7, already knows that the Pharisees are committed to killing Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, they have told the crowd, if you see him, let us know so we can arrest him and put him to death. It will be just in a matter of months after this account in John 9 that Jesus will indeed set up a scenario in which he is arrested. He is betrayed and arrested and put on a cross of which we just sang. That will be at the Passover feast a few months from John 9. But until then, Jesus plays this game of, of public cat and mouse. And I don't mean that he does that playfully, like he's just playing games with them. I mean he does that wisely, shrewdly, and prudently. He has work to do. He has signs to be accomplished. And he is dodging and evading these men filled with the animosity of Satan seeking to kill him. He is wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Chapter 8, we read of this incredibly intense encounter between Jesus and these leaders that leads to, in verses 59 and following, them picking up stones to crush his skull in inside the temple. They were hot mad. They were super mad. They wanted Jesus gone mad. We turn the page to chapter 9, and Jesus leaving the temple finds a man born blind from birth, and instead of being concerned with getting away and finding safety, that's what I would have done, he sees a man in need and ministers to him and heals him of his blindness from birth. There has not been a sign yet in the Gospel of John that has so adequately and indisputably proven that Jesus of Nazareth is exactly who he's saying he is. That he is the one sent from heaven. That he is, as he says of himself, the son of man. That he is, as John says of him, the son of God. As he is, what John the Baptist says of him, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The five preceding signs in John's gospel have given plenty of proof but this is a slam dunk case. Even the blind man can see it. No one can do the works like this unless he is sent from heaven, he says in verse 33. So you would think the Pharisees, the religious leaders who put themselves forward as those the most interested in the things of God and the truth of God, those who have set themselves up as the gatekeepers of the revelation of God, 
would, by the end of chapter 9, be saying, we should maybe give him a fair shake. We should maybe do some investigation to see if this is true or not. But the blindness of their unbelief overpowers any logic or reason. And in verse 34, they say to the man, who are you, a sinner, to tell us how to think about this Jesus? Get out. They excommunicate him, putting him out of the synagogue the hub of Jewish life, essentially ending his life that just began a few hours later. Or a few hours earlier, excuse me, you knew what I meant. And now a few hours later, it's over. He's out of Jewish life. With that background in mind, consider these words, ending John 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Or you could say, we're not also blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. John has written his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He has in his gospel included seven signs, supernatural works from above done on earth in full display of humanity to prove that Jesus of Nazareth, fully man, is fully and truly God in the flesh. This is the sixth of those seven signs in John's gospel proving that Jesus is the one sent from heaven. All of these signs illustrate some aspect of of Jesus as God in the flesh. This one in particular illustrates how Jesus is the light of the world. How coming into the world, he lights up a man's life, both with physical sight and most importantly with spiritual sight. But also how as the light of the world, he divides between those who see and those who cannot see. Showing by his sign that those who think they can see actually are blind from birth spiritually. Those truths are driven home in these seven short verses. Drawing to a close this account of John's gospel. I want to show you the contrast between Jesus and the world in this text. And then I want to show you the connection between faith and worship. And then I want to show you the contradiction between true and false faith. Consider first of all the contrast between Jesus and the world. Jesus and the world are entirely opposed. They are contradistinct to one another. You cannot be both in Jesus and in the world. You cannot hold the world's hand and hold Jesus' hand and go skipping down the lane. This is so very clearly seen in this text. Now the world, to be clear, that this Jewish man was born blind into is a a religious system of of man-made wisdom. It had long ago added to and subtracted from Scripture. It had had piled on to God's revelation the 
safety valves of man's wisdom, putting around God's law safety nets and barriers and fences that you ought not cross so that you don't break God's law, so that you can be right with God. It was a a system of religion which assumed that peace with God was first a matter of birth, being born as a Jew or converting to be a Jew, and then secondly, a matter of religious effort, a keeping of the law of Moses as interpreted by men, scribes, and Pharisees. And if those two things were in place, according to this religious system that this man was born blind into, then you could be right with God and you could be right with their world. You would fit in with them and you would fit in with their God. Our world is significantly different than that, as you know, but the response of the world to true saving faith in every generation of mankind has always looked like this. From Noah's generation to Abraham's generation to David's generation to Joshua's generation to the prophet's generation, Elijah and Elisha, to Jesus' generation to Martin Luther's generation to our generation. True faith is always responded to like this by the world. Well, what is that? It's complete mockery and rejection. We see this in the healed man. He has answered their every question. He's given honest answers to every probing inquiry they have had. And he gives not only honesty, but also increasing clarity. As they ask him questions that are are probing what happened, he tells them with greater clarity, listen, I was healed and this man who healed me must be the one sent from heaven. Those answers, you know, are diametrically opposed to their conclusions about the nature of Jesus. So what do they do? Do they, do they heed the, the sign and its power? Do they consider the words of this man who is now healed standing before them? Do they, do they pause for one second and think, you know, he may have a point here. No, they rally the troops, they pressure his family, they they mock him publicly and they pressure him into buying their narrative about Jesus, that he is a blasphemer and a liar and a deceiver worthy of death. Beloved, you must understand that this is the world. This is how they handle those who speak clearly and truly about Jesus. Those who who speak honestly about the gospel, those who speak honestly about all the things that flow from the fountainhead of the gospel, those who hold fast to the truth of God in every category will be treated like this by the world. It's going to look different in different contexts. But the overwhelming tenor of the world and its relationship to Christ and his truth is mockery and expulsion if you stand before the world and claim exclusivity of his salvation and exclusivity of his will and way and word then just know now you will be opposed by the world you have publicly declared by that statement I am on the Lord's side and in so doing you will take enemy fire. That's how it works. We are in a battle. 
The world hates truth and hates those who cling to it. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Beloved, you cannot be friends with God and friends with the world. You cannot commit yourself to finding a middle way between the two. That you will finally be the Christian who figures out a, a way through the conflict in which you can be faithful to God and friendly to the world. You must pick your sides. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus is Lord, or the opinions of men are Lord. This is why James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? To align yourself with the world is to disalign yourself with God. It's to, to put yourself on the opposing hill. It's to stand with enemy forces and turn your cannon back on God. Therefore, James goes on to say, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's why Jesus will say in John 15, in his final words, his upper room discourse to his disciples, the the most important messages he has for his disciples, he'll say to them, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. He's preparing them, isn't he? I'm going to send you out. As I was sent, so send I you. He says that, right? He's telling them, I'm sending you out there and you need to know before you go, they will not love you. If they loved you, you would be of them. You are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus goes on to say, John 15, 19, and 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. John 16, 33, near the end of his upper room discourse, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, you're on the right side. You're on the winning side if you're with Christ in this battle. But go into the battle with open eyes. Understand there's there's no middle way which can be with Christ and appealing to the world. We need obviously not be intentionally obnoxious or unloving with the truth before the world. You don't need to pick the fight. You don't need to shoot the missiles. You need to stand firm in the truth and just know that you will be shot at. Clinging to Christ by faith, putting yourself on the opposite side of the war from the world, you must know you will take enemy fire. As tensions rise in our own country and around the world about what is actually true about all things, not just the gospel, but Simplicity of things like human gender and sexuality and the beginning of life and when does that start? Things that are undeniably, obviously true. If you simply stand in the truth 
and stand firm in the truth, empowered by God's grace and for the glory of your Savior, you will be hated by the world. But look at the contrast of that with Christ. This man who has been blind for his whole life, who has finally been healed by this man named Jesus, whom he's never actually met, and who he has now testified that he healed me and only one sent from God could heal me, that blind man now healed sits in the dust of rejection and excommunication. In a matter of hours, he has gained his physical sight and then lost everything he's seen. Access to normality of life in a matter of hours. Simply for being clear about the miracle and clear about the miracle worker, he was rejected by the world. But I want you to see Jesus here. Look at the compassion and the mercy exercised by our Lord. He does not abandon this man to fight this battle on his own. He does not leave him in the dust of rejection to to figure out what to do next. Rather, Jesus seeks him out and wisely and mercifully brings his faith to completion, to maturity. He completes the work of grace he began in verse 1. Notice how Jesus does that in verse 35. He doesn't find the man and say to him, hey, listen, I'm the guy who told you to go wash in the pool of Siloam after I spit in the the clay, made mud, and anointed your eyes. Believe in me. No, he wisely, shrewdly, carefully draws this man along into further faith. He says, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the Greek's emphatic with the word you. You. Do you believe In the Son of Man, Jesus is making this personal, and it is very personal for this man. His story has been the flashpoint of all of chapter 9. His life has been entirely turned upside down in all of chapter 9. Now Jesus draws the strings together and he says, Listen, man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, from the context, we know he does not simply mean, Do you agree with the facts about the Son of Man? You know he's not saying that because of what's going on. He is saying much more than that. The fact, the the guy already said that in verse 33. He already said, the guy who did this to me can only be someone sent from heaven. We know from the earlier context when his parents feared being thrown out of the synagogue for declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, that this man knew what he was saying in verse 33. He is the Messiah. So we already know that, that This man knows and understands the facts of this guy who healed him as the Messiah. This is more than that. This is more like, hey, you, do you entrust yourself to the Messiah? Is he everything he's promised to be for you? Jesus uses his favorite title when referring to himself, the Son of Man. We read the text it's taken from in Daniel 7. It's a text about the the dominion and the authority over all kingdoms of the earth given to this one like a son of man and the end of days. Other than that passage, there's not a lot of other Old Testament references to the son of man or the coming son of man, and that's on purpose. 
And Jesus uses that title on purpose. In fact, it's his favorite title to use of himself. Because the Jews have lots of preconceived ideas about terms like Messiah, Son of God, Son of David. They hear those things and they fill in the vacuum of that title with all of their hopes and expectations of what the Messiah is going to be. Jesus picks a messianic title from Daniel 7 that they haven't given much thought to. It's kind of a vacuous statement on purpose. And you remember he says this first to Nathaniel in John 1. At the outset of his ministry, he, he says to Nathaniel, oh, you're, you're delighted that I knew and saw you under the tree. You will see greater things than that as you see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He spends the next three years, of which we're near the end of, filling that title with what it means by his actions and his words. And he has made known to everybody who's paying attention, the Son of Man is one who has power and authority over every human disease and over death itself, who can take a man born blind and can heal him and give him spiritual sight as well. The man answers Jesus cautiously, not knowing who this man asking him is yet. Says to him in verse 36, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You see how he is positioned to believe. This is, this is a true seeker. This is one that, that has been touched by divine initiative. Whom the God of heaven has been working in his heart, drawing this man to himself. It is, it is an irresistible grace at work in this man's heart. And he is, he is ready and positioned to believe. And he says, who is he? I, I want to. Who is he? I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. I want to believe. And then when Christ speaks clearly to him in verse 37, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. The man in verse 38 expresses full and true faith. Before we get to that, I want you to notice the welcoming grace of Jesus in opposition to the wicked hatred of this world. The man found out the hard way that you cannot be accepted by both the world and Jesus. And it was, it was a school of hard knocks on day one of his faith journey with our Lord. He, by faith, clung to the man who had healed him having been so radically touched by the healing power of this man, convinced that he could endure the harshest penalty of Jewish law and Jewish life, it would be worth it if he could find this man and believe in this man. And in the moment of that rejection, he found the welcoming embrace of our Savior. He found the comfort which only Jesus could Provide. You see, where the world mocks and pressures and rejects true faith, Jesus always brings it to completion. Where the world tries to kill any flower of faith in your life, Jesus nurtures it as a master gardener producing in you the most beautiful of flowers and plants of faith. You see, Jesus was the one who started this whole thing. In verse 1, Jesus is going to be the one who is going to finish it in verses 37 and 38. He was not going to abandon the man that he saw born blind, whom he touched and healed. Now he was going to come to him and bring his faith to its full maturity and to its finality of seeing 
him. This is what Jesus always does. This is what Jesus always does. He saves to the uttermost those who are his. He does not, as he will say in chapter 10, lose one of his sheep. They are saved entirely and completely, as Paul promised in Philippians 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Friend, how do you think the blind man felt in the middle of chapter 9? You think he felt like the Lord was close to him as he endured the testing of his faith? Do you think he could, could sing some of our songs of the faith of nearness to Jesus? No, he was bewildered and confused and yet growing in clarity as our Lord wisely let him go through the fires of opposition to bring him to the finality of his faith. And what I want you to notice and rejoice in is that our Lord Jesus never leaves him and never leaves you in that condition. In the dust of rejection and the bewilderment of loneliness, the trial and the testing of our faith, our Lord Jesus shows up heals our wounds and captures our tears in his bottle. Knows our hurts and our angst and our darkest moments. J.C. Ryle says this, he sees all that his people go through for his sake and feels for all, from the highest to the lowest. He keeps account of all their losses, crosses, and persecutions. Are they not all written in his book, Psalm 56, 8? He knows how to come to their hearts with consolation in their time of need and to speak peace to them when all men seem to hate them. The time when men forsake us is often the very time when Christ draws near, saying, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41 10. This is the glorious contrast between Jesus and the world. Notice next the connection between faith and worship. Jesus sought out this man that he had healed in order to bring his faith to its maturity. The man's life having been radically touched and affected by Christ, he now has been marvelously healed by Jesus and he knew in his head and believed in his heart that this pointed to, to much greater realities about this man who healed him. He started the chapter in the the dirt and destitution of a blind beggar and he ends the chapter in the dust of excommunication as he's kicked to the curb by the Pharisees. And now this man is brought to the fullness of faith by Jesus. Before I make this point, just consider how amazing this moment is for him. Imagine this man's plight for decades we don't know how old he is but just he's he's a man so for decades he has been blind he has seen nothing this man comes along spits on the ground anoints his eyes with mud tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam and he will see he goes he does he sees and he sees everything for the first time the blue sky the scorching sun the the glimmering gold of the temple the faces of his parents the the faces of his friends behind the voices of those who have ministered to him for years. The handle of a shovel and 
the utensils of the household, things he's never seen before, now all come to light for him. And yet, here in verse 37, he sees something more glorious than he has ever yet seen in his few short hours of sight, nor ever will see in all of eternity. This is the most glorious thing for him to ever see. The face of the Son of Man. His faith, tested all throughout chapter 9, becomes sight by the end of chapter 9. Notice that everything about his response in verse 37 and 38 is an expression of true and full faith in Jesus. He says to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I believe. I don't know, his life has been entirely ruined in the last 24 hours. Rescued and ruined overnight. And here you have before you the man who did all this. You might have some choice words in your fleshly moment, right? Why this way? Thanks for healing me, but we need to talk. Right? Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's my carnality. Maybe that's not yours. He says none of it. He says, Lord, identifying himself with Jesus as his, his master, knowing that the man in front of him is the man who touched him in verses 1 and 2, by his confession of Lord, placing himself under him as disciple, as follower, as subject and slave of his grace, Lord. And then his public declaration, I believe. You have completed my faith by showing me that you are the son of man. I am fully ready to confess my faith in you. It has already cost me everything. I am delighted to have it fulfilled with you here. And then look what he does. He worships him. The word worship is the Greek word proskuneo. I say that because you've heard it before. It's the word for bowing down and showing or paying obeisance or homage to someone. It's only used one time in John's gospel for someone worshiping Jesus. That's astounding. And this is it. This is the climax of, of John 9. This is the punchline in verse 38. Everything has been building to this moment of the man's faith being filled out with the sight of his Savior. And what does it produce? This, do not miss this. If you're still sleeping because it's 9.45 instead of, or 10.45 instead of 11.45, wake back up and hear this. What does his faith do? What does it produce? Worship of our Lord. We're told in verse 40 that some of the Pharisees were watching the whole exchange. Certainly that was not an accident by our Lord. Certainly he did not find the man somewhere where he couldn't avoid the Pharisees. He could have done that. He found this man in front of the Pharisees on purpose to say to them, if you had spiritual sight like this man, you would worship me too. You would fall on your face in front of me like this man if you saw this clearly. Beloved, this is the 
the right and fitting flower of faith. It is to worship God. True faith always culminates in true worship. And true worship is is always rooted in and based upon true faith. Faith informed by the realities of who Christ is, but faith that's been touched by Christ. Faith that has been personally felt, acknowledged, and has been personally transformational. This man is entirely different, not just because he can see physically, he is entirely different in every category than he was in verses 1 through 3. And that culminates, that springs forth in his life into worship of Jesus. This man is not just intellectually moved by the facts. He is not just emotionally drawn in by the drama of the day and the appearance of his healer. Rather, this is every part of his life responding to all that is true about Jesus before him. He has been completely overtaken by the power of Christ's salvation over body and soul. He can't help but worship him. He doesn't have to work himself up to this. He doesn't need a dark room, fog machines, and a loud band to make him worship. He doesn't need his emotions stirred to worship. He doesn't need an organ and piano to get him in the mood to worship. Well, these are, these are products of our faith. What we do here on a Sunday morning is, is not that which makes you worship. What we do here on a Sunday morning is that which encourages your faith, which produces worship. Because true worship is always rooted in a right understanding of and full submission to and glad delight in the God we worship. And that will look like this humble submission of this man bowing before his Lord, rejoicing in the God who has saved him. There's a noteworthy pattern of this in the scriptures. Being confronted with the power of Jesus and then the presence of Jesus produces this response of humble worship. That's what the disciples did in Matthew 14 when they witnessed Jesus walking on the water and Jesus, Peter says, can I come to you? And he starts walking and then starts sinking. And then Jesus helps him up and they get both in the boat. And how does that all end? The disciples worshiped him. They couldn't help it. They saw the power and were overwhelmed by the presence of this man who was so uniquely different than them, who was obviously from heaven. They fell on their face before him. Luke 24, Luke ends his gospel account by telling us that After the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples and he affirmed to them both in presence and in word that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. The text says in Luke 24 that he opened their minds to understand everything that he had already taught them from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that was written about him and how it must be fulfilled in him. And then he led them out of the city and he ascended back to heaven in their presence. And Luke says in verse 52, their response to all of that, the the stoking of their faith, the informing of their faith, and 
the power of the presence of Christ and the glory of the ascension of Christ, all that produced what in them? Worship. They worshiped him. They did not just fall on their face in that moment and worship him. They, they went back into the city and they obeyed him. As Luke picks up the story in Acts 1, he says they were waiting in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus told them to do. That is worship, which is the product of faith. They believed Jesus was God. They believed what Jesus said to them. They took him at his word. They were overwhelmed by his power. They were healed by his touch. They were transformed by his grace. And they worshiped him in spirit and in truth. You might be saying to yourself in this moment, I do not see Jesus. So how is it possible for me to have this kind of faith and this kind of worship? Well, Peter addresses that, doesn't he? He says, we haven't yet seen him face to face, but we love him. Peter had seen him. Peter had seen him face to face all throughout his ministry. He had seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen him post-resurrection. He had been restored by him in John 21. He had seen him ascend. He had been ministered to by the Holy Spirit personally in Acts 2 and seen it seen the Spirit spread through all of the believers throughout the book of Acts. He had seen the power of Christ and he had known the presence of Christ and he had seen the face of Christ, but he was now aware of the absence of Christ in 1 Peter. He says to people who've never seen him, though you do not now see him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That sounds like worship. Doesn't it? Is that worship? Rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible? What is that based in? You believe him. Faith. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, Peter goes on to say, the salvation of your souls. Beloved, faith simply takes God at his word and believes his testimony about that truth. Faith believes the testimony of Jesus Christ given in the scriptures and it walks through life clinging to these promises of salvation and awaiting their final fulfillment. So though we do not yet see, we walk by faith believing it is coming. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews calls us to, isn't it? In chapter 11, he lays before you one Old Testament saying after another and says, how did they make it? They walked by faith. He summarizes the whole chapter in verse 13. He says, these all died in faith, not having seen or received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, seen them with the eyes of faith, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In other words, beloved, it is at the core expression of your faith and of my faith to see from afar the unfulfilled promises of God and to be assured that they are yet coming. Knowing that though we do not yet see him face to face, we soon will. Though we are not yet in the celestial city, we soon 
will be and what will happen when we get there. John tells us in the book of Revelation, doesn't he? Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4 are synonymous texts where we're told that the dwelling place of God will be with man and man's with God. 22, 3 and 4, he says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Faith will become sight, and it will produce eternal worship. He concludes in verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Brother, sister in the Lord, this is what you have been created by Christ to do. It is to walk by faith, producing out of that faith worship of our Lord and our God, which leads us one step at a time to that coming day of the fulfillment of his promise when faith becomes sight and in seeing him, we will worship him. Lastly, consider the contradiction between true and false faith in verses 39 to 41. I heard Bruce preach for an hour last week, so I've got two this week. Just kidding. (laughs) This true faith of the man who is healed, which flowered into true worship of Jesus as the Christ, is contrasted with the false faith of the Pharisees in verses 40 to 41. I've said this already, but Jesus found this man in a public place knowing the Pharisees were watching so that he could prove this point to them. And the point is powerfully spoken in verse 39 where he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see me may see and those who see may become blind. He has said other places in the Gospel of John that he did not come into the world to to judge the world or to condemn the world, namely in chapter 3. But in that same text in John 3, the same point is being made here in John 9. So the reason Christ came into the world is not to judge or condemn the world because the world is condemned already. Christ came into the world to save the world, to rescue his own. But a natural result of his coming is the dividing line of his presence and his revelation which judges people. For if you do not accept his grace, you receive his condemnation. It just goes hand in hand. If you do not walk in his peace by faith, you live in his wrath for all of eternity. If you do not receive his love by faith, you know his condemnation and excommunication into a place called the lake of fire. This is the contradiction between true and false faith, those with actual spiritual sight and those who are still spiritually blind. Isn't this the illustration of John 9, by the way? Isn't that what John 9 has been all about? Isn't this the living parable summarized in three verses? Jesus' clearest and most indisputable sign, the healing of this blind man, he's brought from physical blindness to physical sight, but he's also brought from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And the ones who claim to have spiritual sight, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who claim to be blind, uh, uh, excuse me, guides to the blind in the nation of Israel, they are the ones who actually can't see at all. It doesn't matter who Jesus is and it does not matter what he does. 
They refuse to believe that he is the one sent from God. It's driven home by that Q&A in verses 40 and 41. The Pharisees ask a question they expect a negative answer to. We're not blind too, are we? Not a chance that we're blind. This is their response to his statement in verse 39. To which Jesus responds with the truth bomb of verse 41. And he says to them, basically, listen, if you were willing to admit your blindness, you could be healed. But since you think you see, your guilt remains. They are living proof of the proverb which states, do you see a man who is wise in his own own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Jesus came into the world to heal the spiritually sick. He came for the sinners, not for the righteous. Last night I sat at our dining room table finishing my sermon. Well, not finishing, working on still my sermon. As I was sitting there working on it, I saw and heard a big blue of lights and sirens coming down my street, which is very unusual for our neighborhood. And they blazed past our house, and I saw them and pull around to our, the cul-de-sac down the road from us and stop in front of a house of one of my neighbors. You know what? They didn't stop at my house. And it didn't cross my mind at all. I wonder what healthy person they're going to go rush to visit tonight. No, they're blazing a trail to the sick and the suffering, so sick and so suffering that it's an emergency. This is a picture of Jesus rushing past the, the homes of those who have no illness or at least will not admit it. Rushing into the world past those who think they need no help to come to the spiritual aid of those who know they are seriously sick. Friend, you simply cannot be healed by Jesus unless you realize you are in desperate need of his touch. These Pharisees had just enough of man-made religion to deceive them into thinking that they were just fine. Is this you, friend? Have you had just enough religion? Just enough practice? Just enough religious words to fit in? To make a go of it in the world of the church life? But you've never actually known the healing touch of Christ himself. We've never cried out like blind Bartimaeus outside of Jericho when Jesus passed and said, Messiah, Messiah, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. He's got things to do. Messiah, Messiah, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus made a beeline to that man. Bring him to me. Now he must be healed. Friend, there's no hope for your eternal sight. For you to eternally be in the presence of our Lord where you will see him and worship him unless you are touched by his saving grace. And you will never be touched by his saving grace unless you respond to the conviction of his spirit that you are spiritually blind, hopeless, helpless, and lost apart from him. 
So how about you, friend? I say as Jesus did to you, you, do you believe in the Son of Man? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would take the seed of the gospel just proclaimed and broadcast into the hearts of your people and that you would produce fruit. We ask that you would produce the fruit of encouragement and comfort and sanctification in our hearts as we see the care and the love of Jesus for this man. May we know by your spirit's power that this is the same love and care shown to us. And then Father, we ask that you would especially press upon the hearts of those who are deceived in their religious efforts like these Pharisees. Help them to understand and comprehend the depth of their sickness in their sinfulness and draw them to Christ our Lord. Lord, we ask this knowing that you alone can do it and confident that when you do it, we will rejoice in the grace you've shown. We love you. Thank you for loving us in your son. In his name we pray, amen.